0: ask you to take your bibles and turn to the book of jonah reed's gonna likely be pulling from this whole this whole book short book but just for some background and some context i'm gonna read jonah chapter one now the word of the lord came to jonah the son of amittai saying arise go to nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. I did write a poem
1: every year uh, from my mom on Mother's Day, which I shared with the church. And uh, this particular poem I wrote after she passed away. So I hope you'll um, uh, take it in that spirit. Uh, Mother's up in heaven now and one wonders what it's like. Do you get to drive a car up there, cut your hair, or ride a bike? Are there any things like barbecue, chocolate milkshakes, or french fries, baseball games, or tournaments, or coconut cream pies? Are we still required to brush our teeth? Will the lawns need mowed each week? In the presence of omniscience, will kids still play hide and seek? Who picks up the garbage there? Are there sewers neath those streets? Is there cable? Maybe movies. Will we organize retreats? Will the angels tell us stories? Will the cherubim sing songs? Are there pockets in our white robes? Hostess ho hos or ding dongs? Will we need our? Will we still need our alarm clocks? Take vacations time to time. Are there shoes or boots or sandals? Will snails still leave trails of slime? These are the things I think about when darkness hides the day. When Thoughts of heaven flood my mind and carry me away. But there are some things I know for sure, because my mother's there. She's been making her suggestions with the utmost thought and care. No one at a banquet there, St. Peter not excluded, can take a seat till mother says. Let no one be deluded. There's macaroni salad there, the kind that mother makes. That means for sure there's Hellman's there and whatever else that takes. I know that there is juicy fruit e'en there in heaven's door because I'm sure she took her purse and it's full with earthly store. I know that there are goldfish because even Zion needs its crackers and mom will turn the angel host into full-fledged heavenly snackers. Baggies of every size and shape will be bountifully supplied so that every feast will end with all leftovers bagged and tied And there's Christmas decorations strung from clouds both high and low and piles and piles of coupons, though where to use them no one knows. Yes, heaven's been a different place since the time my mom's been there. No doubt it's been the first time that there's ever been a scare. Last I think about the joy I'll have to see her face with glory lit when she'll greet me at my coming home and she can tell me where to sit. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. (laughs) Jonah. Uh, Most people have an idea of who Jonah is, if only on account of the the famous story of him being swallowed by the great fish. And that's even if they've never read the 48 verses that comprise the book or or done so very deeply. Uh, But as we start, I've got a real confession to make before we get anywhere down the line. And that is, I've never liked Jonah as a man. Uh, I always saw him as a whiny, cowardly, self-centered, graceless, merciless jerk. Uh, Some of you may share that opinion, I don't know. And I think most of us have one or two biblical personalities or personages that we admire and would love to emulate uh, or identify with in some way. Uh, Abraham or Noah or Joseph or David, young men like to think of Samson, Daniel, maybe one of the prophets. But I have never in all my life heard anyone say that the person they admire most or emulate, want to emulate, is Jonah. Uh, Most mothers don't want to name their kids Jonah. But in time, I've got to be honest, he has become one of my most admired heroes. Why? Uh, I'm not going to tell you till the end. You'll have to wait. So, Um, I'm going to set my timer now, which my daughter says is the most meaningless act in the cosmos, and we'll see where we go. Uh, So for now, I just want to take a a quick survey of the entire book's contents. As you know, it's only four chapters. It's short, and those chapters really make a very neat outline all on their own. You don't have to, to be very constructive there. But just to recount the salient points, for those of you who may have forgotten or have never heard entirely, the account runs like this. Jonah was a Jewish prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel after its uh, civil war. And he's called by God to preach to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is the city of Nineveh. Jonah thinks this is a really bad idea since this foreign empire has shown previous signs of aggression toward Israel and toward other nations. And, and so Jonah tries to run away by, um, by ship heading out into the Mediterranean. He's nearly 600 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh when he gets aboard that ship. The ship then encounters a deadly storm, as we just read in that first chapter, which the sailors discover is the result of this fleeing prophet uh, being on board. And following his counsel, they jettison him from the ship. Jonah then is swallowed up by this divinely appointed fish, and he endures three days and three nights in the belly of that thing being ingested. While in the fish, he repents, and praise to God. And then the fish regurgitates him on shore, and he begins the 550 mile or so journey on foot to Nineveh. Lots of time to think and to process. Jonah finally reaches Nineveh, and he preaches to them about God's judgment. And from the leadership on down, they believe him. They believe the message that he brings to them, and there is sweeping repentance in this great pagan city, and so God spares Nineveh in response to their repentance. So then Jonah laments God's willingness to show mercy on these pagans. This is a place where I identify with Jonah, by the way, and God confronts Jonah regarding the hardness of his heart. It's quite the, quite the account, and I want to proceed this way. Rather than exegete one particular small portion out of of the book. I want to, uh, since we've only got one stab at this, I I, want to go through the narrative and then just point out some major concepts that are important for us to grasp and maybe some additional applications along the way. Now, the first verse actually tells us quite a bit about Jonah. Uh, 1-1 reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, and thanks to that little bit of identification, we get some really useful background on Jonah. Uh, you get that background out of 2 Kings chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But in fourteen twenty-three through 25, it reads, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern empire after the uh, civil war. And he reigned forty-one years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord the God of Israel which he spoke by his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, who was from Gath-Hefer. So as we see in 2 Kings, Jonah was already an active and an important prophet. He already had a prophetic career when this call came to go to Nineveh. He wasn't a novice. But one of the key aspects of being a prophet of God, and you probably know this from your own study, is that whenever whatever a prophet of god prophesied had to come to pass and if it didn't israel was not to regard him as a prophet anymore that's a pretty heavy responsibility we read that in deuteronomy 18 uh, where god says but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that i've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Don't regard him. Uh, That might have some real current application. I'll leave that to you in your television viewing. Now, but this is gonna play a a really vital role in how we view Jonah's dilemma later. So don't let go of that thought. We're gonna come back to it. So we go back to verses one and two. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here then is the first issue, and I've already outlined it a little bit, but let me repeat. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. He's ministering in and around Samaria, the capital of of northern Israel. And so for obvious reasons, he has no vested interest in preaching to a pagan nation. In fact, he has no precedent for a prophet of God at this point, preaching to a pagan nation. And at that, Assyria was a, a nation that had already shown aggression toward Israel as well as some of its neighbors. So he would have caught God's meaning right away, and he wasn't happy with it. The phrase that their evil has come up before me was an indication of just how exceedingly wicked they were and that they were about to be subject to God's judgment. God, who is so infinitely patient. You remember uh, back in the book of Genesis when God called Abraham, and Abraham wanted to know how, what proof was that he was actually going to have this son by miraculous means that was going to come from, from him and Sarah. And God said, well, the proof is, and this is one of the things God always does, if you're looking for proof, God's proofs tend to be promises. And so the proof is only proof to you if you actually believe it and take it as a promise. And that's what he says to to Abraham. He says, well, what's going to happen is that you're going to go into Egypt and you're going to be captives there for about 400 years. And after that 400 years, I'm going to bring you out. And then he tells him why it's going to be such a long time. Hmm. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God is extraordinarily patient, even with the pagans. I know that for sure because I know how patient he is with me. And and Jonah knows that, and he doesn't want God to be patient with them. I don't blame him. He doesn't want to see God spare them in any way. He especially does not want to be the instrument through which they receive God's mercy. Side note. I wonder who we're unwilling to be God's vessel of mercy and why? Just something for you to think about. So, these are militaristic, expansionistic uh, pagans. One source noted uh, quote, annual warfare was a national institution, close quote. And they were far more vicious than anything we have ever seen from ISIS or any place, any place else in these last years. They were known for extreme and excessive. Brutality. In fact, in a hundred years or so down the line, after this all takes place, these same Assyrians are going to come back and decimate Israel, raise the capital city of Samaria, and deport nearly 30,000 of its inhabitants. These aren't nice guys. Israel, in fact, would never recover from that terrible time. That said, then, Jonah doesn't respond well. He responds more like I would. So you get it in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And if you're keeping notes, uh, this is the first lesson that we get in Jonah. It comes to us in these first two verses, the revelation and responsibility. We all, as Christians, are responsible for the word that God has revealed to us. It isn't just the prophets who have this responsibility. It's you and me. Once we've heard and known God's will expressed in His word, we're now responsible for it in our lives. The question is, what are we going to do with it? We can't remain indifferent to it. We we can't pick and choose what we want to believe and what we want to receive versus what we don't want to believe and don't want to receive, when God speaks, we're responsible for hearing. And the question is, how do we respond when we know what God has said in His Word? It's an important question. In Jonah's case, he responded by trying to ignore it. I've done that, maybe you have too. By running the other way, by just refusing to pay attention to it. And we might ask ourselves today, again, a little side note here, how are we responding to the word of God in our lives and the demands that come with knowing that word? We put the word demands in there. It actually should be the word privileges. But nevertheless, we do have to wrestle with this reality. And just a short reminder here, a small reminder, especially in in light of our current In evangelicalism in America today, um, I don't know about you, but uh, have you ever been in a place where you've tried to say, God, I can't discern your will for this particular situation? The wonderful thing about serving God is we're not responsible for what he hasn't revealed. We're only responsible for what he has revealed. You pay attention to what he has, he takes care of what he hasn't It's why the Word of God is so important to us as believers. It's not a document just filled with nice suggestions and sage advice. It's God speaking to his people, and it demands a response from us in everything that it addresses. And just as there's something pretty distasteful in what God said to Jonah in this text, you and I might find something pretty distasteful to our personal wants and preferences and desires as well. And when we do, the question again is, how are we going to respond? For you see, distastefulness is no excuse for refusing. But don't worry about the things God hasn't revealed. Deuteronomy tells us that, 29-29. The things that God has revealed belong to us and to our children so that we might observe to do everything that's in His word. The things He hasn't revealed belong to Him. And yet, how often do Christians spend hours and hours agonizing over what God hasn't revealed? Who should i marry who should i date what car should i buy who should i vote for he hasn't revealed those things and he's not going to so don't worry about them we'll go that's another sermon we'll do it another time lesson number two comes out of verse three and again if you're keeping notes this is the costliness of disobedience the hebrew is actually interesting here and it indicates that Jonah may have paid such a large fare to get on board the ship that they didn't need any other passengers or cargo so that they could go quickly. Um, I I, I read a Jewish commentator on this, and he notes that this this voyage would have taken probably a year, and so that would have made the the cost of passage really, really high. In order to run away from God, you're going to have to pay a high price, much higher than you think. And that's exactly where Jonah was, because sin is always more costly than obedience. We seldom see that because sin is so deceptive. Our own hearts are so deceptive. We're convinced that the cost of obedience is higher than the cost of disobedience, but that's a lie. It's never true, it's always more costly. Wasn't my home. Let me tell you, my dad had giant hands like baseball mitts. And, and when you disobeyed, you got to understand what the, you know, the seat of understanding was all about. But disobedience, as, as you noticed in the text, is really important. It's always a downward spiral. Look at the way the text reads. You, you, you seldom get to the bottom all at once. You know, disobedience starts at a certain place and we kind of, we kind of inch our way down. And look how it's portrayed in the language. If you look at verse 3, it says that Jonah went down to Joppa. And then also in verse 3, he went down into the ship. In verse 5, he went down into the interior of the ship. In verse 5, he went down into sleep. The Septuagint says he actually slept so hard that he snored and they could hear it above the storm that, that uh, comes on the ship. In 115, he ended up going down into the sea. In 117, down into the belly of the fish. And in 2.6, down into the bottoms of the mountains. That's, disobedience is always a downward spiral. It's exactly where it takes us. Any movement away from God and His purposes is always downward. It's never lateral. We might think it for a time, but it's it's not true. It's a deception. Which brings us then to lesson three in 1-3. And that is the inescapable presence of God. God's presence is neither situational nor geographical. He can't be fled from. If you doubt that, go back and read Psalm 139. If I were to take the wings of the morning, if I were to uh, go into the grave, if I were to ascend into the heavens, it wouldn't matter. God, you're, you're everywhere. Jonah knew that he couldn't actually run from God's presence, which is everywhere, but the expression was meant to say that he was trying to escape the face of God. He didn't want to face God with what was going on. He ran in an effort to refuse to submit to what he knew was God's will, to flee from serving him. Jonah's mistake was in thinking that he, in fact, had the option to refuse God's lordship and that God would then just leave him alone. Not so. Years ago, when I was young and learning about drug addiction, the, the, cur- the phrase that was very popular then uh, to someone who was an addict was that they had a, a monkey on their back. Let me tell you, you can't get a worse monkey on your back than God when you're in disobedience. He is the divine nag, and he delights in it. He won't let his children go. No one who is Christ can refuse to serve him and just be left alone. You will be hunted and pursued until you are restored or destroyed, but you will be hunted and pursued. It reminds me of the famous lines of that that wonderful poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. If you haven't read it, it's well worth your time. it's, It's a recounting of how he tried to flee from God's call to salvation. That might be you today. You know full well that God has been dealing with your heart about the gospel, but you have been so recalcitrant, and you think if you just ignore it, at some point, God will leave you alone. He will not. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit will pursue you. Believe me, if you perish, you will perish in the face of God chasing you, not because He ignored you. Thompson writes this when he was talking about his own experience. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth and ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears, didn't matter if I was in joy or in misery, from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. That's true. And so with Jonah, all things betrayed him while he was in the midst of trying to betray his God. Which brings us to our fourth quick lesson. It's in 1.6. And that is the negative effect of disobedience on prayer. He gets into this ship. This terrible storm arises. And Jonah's seeming indifference to it all, is is brought on by his hardness. And so in his hardness, he's confronted by the captain of the ship. Read it in verse 6. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. But you see, disobedience always chills our interest in praying and it impedes God's willingness to respond. If you doubt that, take a look at 1 Peter 3, 7 and what it says about husbands and wives and how our prayers can be hindered if we are not treating our wives well. It's an important dynamic and one that, that gets ignored, I'm afraid. I know this from my own experience, how well, when I'm in a controversy with God, and some of you know what that's like, some of you are going to pretend you don't, but when I've been in a controversy with God, the first thing that suffers is my prayer life. Always. Prayer ceases to be a refuge and a place to offload my burdens when I'm contrary to Him. And I know it from years of experience in walking with others in their disobedience. When someone comes to me and saying, when I was pastoring, and they say they're contemplating leaving their husband or wife, the first thing I want to inquire about is, really, what's your prayer life like and what's your Bible study life like? And I guarantee those two have fallen by the wayside. You can't get around it. Like Jonah, sin finds us fleeing from God. And as God complained to Israel in Micah 3, God says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. At this point, Jonah can't pray to God with any hope of being heard because he's in active rebellion against Him. And the same is true for for you and me. And it's the mark of a peculiarly hard heart when we do think that we can pray and be heard when we're living in such rebellion. I had a friend um, who confessed that for years after he had become saved, he had gone into a rather backslidden state. Wonderful term, backsliding, isn't it? It's only used once in the Old Testament. It's a farming term. It means to shrink back from pulling the yoke. You don't stop being an ox. You just say, I'm not going to pull anymore. And God will use the ox goad to get you moving. he give you a good pointed stab. Uh, he does that. This guy was in that situation, and he found himself out selling drugs on the street. And he said, do you know what the moment of repentance was? I found myself on the street corner praying, God, as I sell these drugs today, please don't let me sell them to an undercover cop. And that's exactly what he did. Sold him to an undercover cop. And he said, I got busted. And he said, and then it dawned on me, how hard was my heart that I was actually asking God to protect me from the wrong that I was doing? Oh, that's, that's what sin does. It's a deceptive thing. Even Jonah knew better than this, so that from the beginning, Jonah refuses, it seems, to pray about his issues. We don't see it written anywhere that he did. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but he doesn't take his conflict to God and discuss it with him. Instead, he internalizes it and just runs. Bad move. So on the ship, when the wind and the waves were about to take them, he still refuses to pray because he knows there's A broken relationship here, and it's only after being in the fish for three days that he at last breaks down and finally begins to speak to God. You see, God's turning up the pressure on him every step, and Jonah's refusing every step. Mark it well. When the child of God is disobedient to God, it always affects more than just him or herself. And it often has deleterious effects even on the lost that we encounter in our rebellion. Here were these men on this ship in terrible danger because of the disobedience of the believer. What a tragic thing. God save us from impacting others with our sin who seem to us to be outside the circle of our interaction with God. The world needs us to be walking with him. They really do. Which brings us to number five. It's in verse 12. And it's how disobedience distorts reality. Look at verse 12. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So when Jonah sees that his disobedience is bringing all the problems that it's bringing on them, he makes this staggering choice he would rather die than repent and obey. How distorted is that? How twisted is that? I find this terribly searching, though. I have to ask myself, when I, what sin am I so tied to that I'd rather die than let go of it and grow further in the image of Christ? Maybe, maybe you've got one that you need to think about in those terms. Anyway, in the belly of the fish, Jonah will repent of his sinful action, but make no mistake, at this point in the story, he's not yet repented of the sinful heart and the motivations behind the action. This isn't a fully turned around man yet. We'll get there. So we learn here, too, that sin can never be dealt with merely on the basis of modified behavior. That's not sanctification. Sanctification is when we begin to pursue holiness as naturally as God does out of a changed nature, not out of mere modified behavior. That's what it means to be conformed to His image, to be made like Him. Because God never does anything because it's right. He does it because it's His nature. And can you imagine that's where He wants to bring you and me? What an astounding privilege that is that we would be that transformed. Jonah's not been thoroughly dealt with until at the end of the book when he finally hears God's heart and not just his command. And it's the woeful reality that many serve God in action while their hearts remain untouched and inwardly as contrary to God as ever. There's a story about a dad and his five-year-old daughter who were about to go for a car ride. She rebelled at having to sit down and put on the seat belt, and she wanted to stand up on the seat instead. Finally, when Dad wouldn't relent, she sits, but has this really angry look on her face, and her dad says to her, well, thank you for sitting and wearing your seat belt, and she quickly replies, I'm still standing up inside. I think that's where a lot of us are in serving God. We profess Christ, and we play the role of Christian, but inwardly we're bristling at God and his providences and his dealings with ourselves and with others. I have a friend who's part of the Fire Fellowship of Churches. This last November, it's not in my notes, this is a freebie, so I, I take it off my time. Um, uh, he pastors down in uh, just outside of Toledo, Ohio. Uh, and Greg. Uh, got COVID um, and he landed in the uh, intensive care unit and he was in a coma for the next uh, eight weeks. They finally had to put a tracheotomy in him to get him to breathe. In the process, uh, there was a problem with the way they had put some of the IVs in and it had cut off circulation and so they've had to remove the first three fingertips from his hands. They've um, Taking those off. Uh, He just went home last week after after 16 weeks (laughs) in intensive care. He's learning how to talk again. He's eating food, solid food for the first time. Uh, He's very happy about the fact he's lost a lot of weight. Um, He's he's learning how to walk again uh, because he hasn't been able to walk. And he texted me the other day. Just grateful for how God had spared him. No complaint. No argument with God's providence in his life. Because he knows the heart of his God and can trust him. I was rebuked when I read it. Because I think of how easily I complain. You know, We kid about his... As pastors, you, you sometimes you don't want to ask somebody how you doing, because you'll get an organ recital. Well, my kidneys are bad, my my liver's bad, my heart's doing this. You know, they'll go through the litany of their organs. But um, there was none of that And Greg. I said, Oh God, you know, let me let me see this brother and take something from his from the modeling of his trust in you and willingness to say. This is in the providential hand of my loving Father. I don't know how to process it entirely, but I know Him. All the while, we sometimes fail to hear God's heart and uh, this distorted way of looking at ourselves and God's ways like Jonah. Throw me overboard, but I don't want to repent. Well, Jonah finally shifts at the end, but what difficulty he endures until then. Even even as you get close to the end of the book, nothing can please him. Nothing can make him happy. Nothing can keep him from investing too much happiness in temporary comforts and too much sorrow in their loss. For his mind is on earthly things. Mercy and grace don't fill his soul. Not yet. Not yet. Lesson 6, it's in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And there we learn to never underestimate God's willingness to restore the disobedient. (laughs) Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, the grave, and you heard me. Chapter 2 is really a remarkable chapter because the whole chapter is a prayer of thanksgiving. But where is this prayer prayed? In the fish, not after he's out. You have to ask, how does a prayer of thanksgiving even fit at this point? I mean, he's alive, but we're easy. He's in the belly of the fish. So why this thanksgiving? Well, first, because he is alive, and in fact, he was deserving of, and yet is preserved from the hell from which there's no return. And he's finding at this moment there's something to be thankful for. And thankful too for the, in the short time it took for Jonah to sink to the bottom of the sea and to make a most guttural and primitive cry, God heard him and put him in the fish. Yeah, it's hot there, it's smelly there, it's dark and it's uncomfortable and the future is uncertain, but it is not eternal separation from God under his undiluted wrath anything would be better than that and Jonah's thankful even still in his hardness he's thankful when one has been so close to utter destruction being saved by only an inch that's a cause for celebration and maybe this is someone here today you're smarting you're reeling from the after effects of sinful choices on your part that might be you If you're truly Christ, no matter how dire it looks, your God is a loving and forgiving God, and you have reason to turn to Him in thanksgiving, even now for the fact you've not been abandoned to hell. And therefore, there's great hope for the days ahead. What a wonderful God He is. What a Savior. Days of usefulness in His kingdom, even though you may have fallen very greatly. We've got to move on to the end of His prayer. It's in verse 9. But I, with the voice of understanding, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. At this point, Jonah is yielding to God's will in confronting the Ninevites. Jonah's reticence to go to them in the first place is due to the fact that he doesn't want God to be merciful to them and save them. We got that in 4.2. And if he does go, there will be personal consequences to boot. Remember? We read that portion out of Deuteronomy about prophets and how they're only to be listened to if their word comes to pass. Here's the problem. Here's a conundrum for Jonah at this point. If he goes to the Ninevites and he preaches to them that God's going to destroy them in 40 days and then God has mercy on them, his word won't come to pass and he'll no longer be a prophet with honor. How does he go back to Israel? His entire life, his self-image, his purpose, everything's gone because he's going to lose all credibility. And add to this the, the fact that they are Israel's enemy, that they are pagan persecutors, and he really does not want to be good to them. But at the end of the prayer, he relents from trying to stop God's arm, and he confesses that salvation is not his either to withhold or bestow But that salvation belongs to the Lord and he can give it to whoever whom he sees fit. That's quite a yielding in him at this point. Our desires for or against notwithstanding, God is capable of saving anybody, even those that have been worse to us. God could save Vladimir Putin, he could even save Donald Trump. Who knows? But it belongs to him and to him alone. And he's free to give it only as he sees fit. God is free to extend mercy to any. And it's his divine prerogative. We can't steer that. Yet how we rebel against him when his mercy is to those who disgust us or we have a hate or a fear of. Don't miss this anti-typology with Jesus. If we miss this, we actually miss the entire book. Jonah wants no part in rescuing his enemies while Jesus comes willingly to die for his enemies. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What a redeemer. Jonah flees from what's uncomfortable and distasteful while Jesus willingly drinks the full wrath of the Father. Jonah has no compassion on 100,000-plus lost people. Jesus has compassion on unnumbered multitudes more. Jonah faces rejection, but Jesus faces actual death. You know, the Nineveh was hundreds of miles away from the shore of the Mediterranean. Jesus crossed the gap of space and time for us. I've heard others mention, you know, it must have been quite a spectacle to see Jonah belched up on on shore. I'm sure it was, but none of the Ninevites saw it. Like I said, he was 500, 600 miles away. They didn't see this, this divine sign. His preaching alone would have to suffice but this he knows full well, salvation belongs to the Lord. Lesson 7 in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. And it's just this the true repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. Jumping ahead for time's sake, we we all know that Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh and he preaches, and there's pervasive repentance on the part of the people. Let me read just part of that. I'm picking up in verse six of chapter three. The word. Reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that they did, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now, as is noted by others, I didn't make this myself, God did not relent because of their fasting and abasement alone, but because of what they did, which included turning from their wicked ways. That's repentance. God saw their sackcloth and their fasting. Uh, Listen, listen, this is a Jewish commentator, if you can imagine. Brethren, it is not written of the men of Nineveh that God saw their sackcloth and fasting, but that God saw what they did and how they turned back from all their evil ways, close quote. Even the pagans understand that's true. The the comedian Tim Conway once relayed an experience where he was in a a shopping mall, and as he was pulling out of a parking space, uh, a woman wanting to take his space tried to squeeze in and hit his car and damaged it. Uh, She backed up a little bit, and then she rolled her window down and leaned out and said, Hey, I'm I'm sorry. And he said, Okay, uh, I need your insurance and your personal information. And she said, well, I I said I'm sorry. And he said, yeah, but we we need to settle this. You damaged my car. And she said, oh, I know I did. I fully agree. And I said, I'm sorry. Well, she was not going to relent on this, and neither was he. And uh, to his own uh, sadness, he jumped up and down on the top of the hood of her car until it caved in on the engine. And then the police came, and he got arrested as well. It wasn't the the best way to, to solve that particular difficulty, but... The, the, the idea is just this, just saying I'm sorry isn't repentance. Something else has to, has to occur here. Repentance entails changing action, changing course. You read that in real detail in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. In each of the, the, the examples that Paul gives there, there is a ceasing from doing what was wrong to doing what was right, but because there's a change of heart and mind. And that's, that's really what needs to be going on here. You know, do you have a problem with stealing? Don't just stop stealing. Labor to have enough to give surplus to others generously. But opposite thought processes and behaviors are integral to true repentance, not just expressions of being sorry. Being sorry and remorse is good, but it's only half the equation, which leads us to lesson eight because we need to close this down soon. It's in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Never underestimate God's willingness to forgive. As we come to the end of the story, we see a miserable Jonah hacked off at the fact that God is merciful to these wretched pagans. He is not happy. God has withheld his judgment, has listened to their repentance, and Jonah's ticked off. So he sits down outside the city to see what would happen, and there in the blazing Iraqi sun, God graciously provides some shade for him, which makes him happy. And then God takes the shade away the next day, which makes him angry. And God has to help him get some perspective. Perspective on what's really, what really ought to make us sad or angry or glad by sharing God's own heart and mind. So we read how God confronts him. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant, the one that brought him shade? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And God said, and I think I can hear a chortle in God while he's responding to him. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. As has been well said by others, we're far greater sinners than we're willing to believe and God is a much more merciful God than we're willing to believe. What a compassionate heart he has on the lost. How we misread his word when we make lost sinners our enemies rather than having compassion on the state of their souls and the eternal consequences that lay just before them side note won't take off my time Jesus on the night of the last supper washes Judas's feet how does he do that I suspect it's this He is more broken over what will be the eternal destiny of his betrayer than he is over his own betrayal. I want that heart. I want that heart. Let me move on. Why does Jonah become a hero to me at this point? And the whole rests in this one consideration. But this entire book has to be autobiographical. Since so much that's related in it, only Jonah could have recorded. Uh, we, We wouldn't know the prayer that went on in the fish. We wouldn't know all the other details. The only way we know that is because Jonah's the one who wrote it down. From that frame, note how it is that when all is said and done, this is how Jonah ends his book. God gets the last word. The book ends with God's statement of the principle of his mercy and how it's only right that it extends to the fallen sons of Adam wherever they might be found. And so in this autobiographical account then, Jonah wants us to learn what he learned. Yes, the Assyrians were barbarians in every sense of the word. Yes, they had committed unspeakable atrocities. Yes, they were Israel's vicious enemies, but they were human beings, souls created in the image of God, and they were not to be thrown away like last week's newspaper. And yes, Jonah was God's man, but in a very rebellious state. He had legitimate concerns, but was responding sinfully to the danger and at that to the detriment of others around him. He showed almost nothing for God's, uh, of God's goodness to anyone, And he needed the same grace and mercy he wanted to deny the Assyrians in order to serve his God. So why is he a hero? (laughs) What what makes for heroship there? Because when it's all said and done, by the time we reach the end of the book, Jonah doesn't care what you think about him and how deep his sins are, which are evident and severe in many. He only cares that you know how good God is. he becomes absolutely thoughtless about trying to preserve anyone's good opinion of himself. He wants his readers at the expense of any negative thoughts we might have about him to see a God who is so gracious and so kind and so merciful and who so much delights in showing mercy to the lost that it's staggering. Reminds me of that quote from George Whitfield. Let the name of Whitfield perish so long as God is glorified. That's where Jonah is at this point. I'm I'm laying it all out there so that you can see how good he is. So I can paint the glory of God against the black background of my sin. It's a text both of restoration for fallen saints and for the salvation of lost sinners because of how he glorifies his God and gives him the last word. And this can only be found in the person and the work of God in Jesus Christ. It's utterly astounding, isn't it? Jonah told the truth about himself in order that we might come to know the truth about the saving mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, that's the God we want you to know. That's the Christ we want you to hear about, who dies for sinners, not for good people, and who works in us. As you can see in him, you think maybe if you come to Christ, you won't live well for him. Yeah, Jonah's the poster child for blowing it. And see how good God is in restoring him, in using him. And maybe, Christian, here today, you've You've been in Jonah's place. You've been running. You know you've been running. You've been really refusing what you know is his will as it's been expressed in his word. Let me tell you, he hears prayers of repentance. He honors those who repent. Your days of usefulness aren't over. Maybe you've lost a position. Maybe you've lost the right to hold a certain place in the church or, or even in your home. It doesn't mean you can't be fully restored to him, even if you can't be reinstated in a former role. I don't know that, that Jonah could go back and be a prophet in Israel after this. I don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But I know he showed us God.